following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. All right, if you've got a Bible, uh, turn with me to Book of John. I'm going to be in the end of chapter 7, 7.53, right through to 8.11. Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn again, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? No one has condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. That's the word of the Lord this morning. I want to I just take you back um, quite a long time. Uh, when I was about 11 years old, and I was in grade 6 in primary school, in English class. And uh, for, for uh, English class, the whole grade read the same book. And uh, the school gave everyone a copy of this book. And because there were so many copies floating around... You had to write your name in the front. And, uh, you know, because the school, like most schools, didn't have a lot of money, uh, they recycled these books year on, year out. So you got a copy with lots of names written in the front. You could see all the past students who'd had your copy. And it was really cool. It was like a, a little bit of school history in your hands. You could go, oh, well, that guy, he's two grades ahead of me now. Or well, this person, oh, they're a real troublemaker. Oh, boy, they got my book. And... Uh, so yeah, I got this book, and, and being the joker that I was, I, uh, I thought, I won't write my own name in this book. I'm going to write someone else's, and, and not just anyone else's name. I wrote Mel Gibson in the front of my book. I thought it would be funny. I mean, I thought it'd be great. You know, you lose your book, and then there's someone running class to class going, I'm looking for Mel Gibson. Is he in this class? I've got his book. Mel Gibson. Anybody? Mel Gibson. I hadn't really thought that far ahead on the joke. It was going really well right up until the point where I actually lost the book and someone handed it to my teacher. Now, how was my teacher going to find out who this book belonged to? I hadn't thought that far ahead because she did what every teacher did back then. She stopped the class and she yelled at the top of her voice. She said, who wrote Mal Gibson in their book? The whole class went dead quiet. They just knew someone was getting in trouble. And they'd go, Ooh. So I you know, very sheepishly put up my hand. And then she yelled something I will never forget. Grant Marshall, you are far too ugly to be Mel Gibson. <laughs> <laughs> ouch, ouch. <laughs> what do you say to that? 
I sat there like a deer in the headlights, just hoping the ground would swallow me up. Oh, I'd been caught. I'd done something a little stupid. Arguably, the punishment probably didn't fit the crime. Um, but I was humiliated in front of all my friends. And, uh, and I, look, I tell that story not because I want your sympathy. I mean, that was probably 20 years ago now. But, uh, you know, in some small way, it goes a little way to helping us understand what it was like for that woman uh, to be humiliated in front of the crowd. Uh, we've all had situations, eh? we've all been called out, all been humiliated in front of people we love. We all know how that feels and how terrible it is. Hmm. Now, before we really dig into this passage, I just want to just point out something. Some of your Bibles are going to say uh, this passage isn't in some of the earliest manuscripts and in many other ancient witnesses. And uh, some of your Bibles uh, you know, may have it in a different font or bracket it out. There's a really, really long, complicated history as to how this even came to be a part of our Bibles today. Uh, and we're not going to get into any of that. Some of you are going to be very grateful for that. Uh, there's a lot of debate about it, about whether we should still even have this passage in. I've done a, a one-page document that will be available on the app for you to download or on the website. It just goes through some of the reasons why I actually think this should, should be a part of our Bibles. Some further reading if you want to do that, if you're interested. We just don't have time to get into that today. Okay, all right. Let's dig into the passage. So, Jesus is there at the temple courts at dawn. He's teaching, and the Pharisees have dragged in this woman caught in the act of adultery. Interesting detail there, hey? Caught in the act. This wasn't going out having coffee with another man. It means what you think it means. She was caught in the act of adultery. And... Uh, I've got to wonder, really, how do you catch someone in the act of adultery? I mean, just, you know, logistically, that's, that's quite a feat to catch someone like that because people don't, don't parade affairs and adultery out in public, do they? They're very hidden, private behaviors, very secretive about those sort of things. And it really feels like not only is this a trap for Jesus, but I think they've, they've trapped this woman, they've used her, because last time I checked, it takes two people to commit adultery, right? You know, and if you could catch her in the act of adultery, surely you could catch the man too, right? Just saying, you can catch her, I can, you can't catch him. Feels like the guy's kind of been given a free pass here to get out, get out of jail free, really. And I think what really seals it for me is, is the, the spin the Pharisees put on, their own, on the law here. They say, no, Jesus, the law Moses gave us commanded us to stone such women. Ooh, interesting. Really, is that what the law said? Pretty sure the law said you stone both parties. That's what Deuteronomy said. Mm. Interesting that they want to put all the blame on the woman here. I think reading any situation with the Pharisees like this, it's, it's tempting to see them as, as people that are trying to maintain moral purity in Israel, trying to make sure everyone's really ethical and above board, and they're trying to trap Jesus in that regard. Well, I don't think that's what's going on here. I think what they're trying to do is, is actually smoke Jesus out. They're really trying to test his political allegiances here. They want to see whose side he's on, and then they want to see, well, what kind of Messiah is he going to be then? And that's all because at this point in Israel's history, the Romans, who, who are the occupying force, have removed the right of the Jews to execute people. So if the Pharisees really wanted to stone this woman, what they'd have to do is drag her before Pilate and say, we have a law, 
and by that law, she must die. Can we execute her? Which is pretty much what they did with Jesus, right? So what the Pharisees are really trying to get Jesus to say, or they want to say by this action is, Jesus, we want to, we want to disobey Caesar. We don't want Rome to govern us. We want to submit to God and Torah alone. We want to say, God is king in this place and not Caesar. We're going to make God king by force here. We're going to have a mini revolution here. We're going to start a small rebellion by stoning this woman and disobeying Caesar. And Jesus, all we want to know is, are you with us or are you against us? Are you on our side, Jesus, or are you part of the enemy's side? Are you going to be the kind of Messiah that's going to rid us of the Romans and restore the kingdom to Israel, or are you just something else? And how would they know? How would they know which side Jesus was on? Simply how he responded to the question of adultery. Jesus, if you agree with us on this question of adultery, we know you are in. We're friends. We're on the same side. Great. If you disagree with us, Jesus, well, watch out. We might throw some stones at you. And I think when you see that passage in, in that light, some things in our, our modern world start to come into focus, right? I mean, the way they were testing Jesus 2,000 years ago is, uh, is a lot like the way we test each other today. We live in, in really divisive times, don't we? I mean, unless we've been living under a rock, it's hard to see how divided we've become, particularly on issues like, like race, like gender, on immigration, what happens in the Middle East. We're just, every day there's just a new issue we are divided on. And it's not that we actually have different opinions on these things. I think, you know, that's to be expected. But it's that each of these issues have become well, boundary markers of a group. They've become identity markers, the way of saying who we are. It's that, you know, what you believe about each issue will put you in a particular group. He'll say, you know, if I believe this and that, well, that makes me on the right side, and if anyone else believes different, they're the enemy. It's kind of how we divide these days. Let me give you an example of how this has just worked out recently. Who remembers uh, Israel Folau's infamous tweet? Yeah, remember it? Yeah? Okay. Let's just uh, you know, try and look at it calmly and rationally. Let's just put aside what he said for a moment, what he actually said. And let's just look at the way people responded to each other when, uh, when discussing what he said. The first thing I noticed was that people very quickly split into two groups, each side saying, you know, you're with us and against him, and, or you're the enemy. You know? Or you're with us and we stand with him and they're the enemy. And you had those on the progressive side who saw what he said as, as hate speech, homophobia, people trying to impose Stone Age values on the 21st century. I mean, it's 2018, people, come on. It was just so much outrage. People tried to have him sanctioned and kicked off the team. The former immigration minister said he could be barred from entering the country because now he's a threat to public order. Brad Weber of the Chiefs said, I can't believe I have to play on the same field as people like Israel Folau. Ironic that a movement that builds itself on inclusion, diversity, and tolerance, ironic they could throw so many stones. And then you had people on the conservative end of the spectrum who were just really outraged by all the outrage. This was a test for religious freedom, for free speech, and just another battle in a long and sustained attack on traditional values. 
Some people started saying things like, I stand with Israel Folau. There was a whole hashtag series going on with that. And uh, some people went as far as saying, well, if you are a Bible-believing Christian, you must stand with Israel Folau, as if the gospel credibility and, and all of Christianity hinged on this one question, what do we do with the rugby player who has a phone and a Twitter account? Funny thing was, you know, like uh, each group just threw stones and claimed it was either self-defense or they were the victim and, and these guys were the enemy. We're on the right side. They're on the wrong side. We're on the right side of history. You're on the wrong side. No, we've been on the right side of history for all the time. You're the wrong guys. People just got more and more hated, and there was just no middle ground. More, no debate, no reasoning. Each group just used what he said as a way to test their own boundaries and an orthodoxy, a way to see who was in and who was out, who was on the right side and who was the enemy. And you knew this was the case because after a while, it actually didn't matter what he said. He wasn't the focus anymore. People just used what he said as a launching pad to kind of Grind their own agendas, push their own acts. It's easy to, um, to look at that kind of circus that went on there for a while, and, um, and thankfully people have moved on, but maybe to the next thing they get outraged by. It's really interesting to, to look at that and say, well, okay, I didn't get involved in that. I wasn't really you know, a keyboard warrior and arguing with people on, on the internet because they were wrong. Uh, and it seems to me that you know, when I look at Shaw as a church, I, I don't think we're a really divided bunch. We don't tend to throw stones at each other really, uh, really often, or not, not in my history of being here. And, and it's easy to look at a passage like this and say, okay, well then that doesn't really apply to me. Let me just give you one example where I think there may be times where we might a little too easily take sides, a little too easily just throw stones at, at people. Most of us would know someone who's, who's gone through a breakup, right? Separation, a divorce of some kind. Um, how easy is it then to, to take sides in those kind of situations? How easy is it, uh, you know, to, to make out that the breakup was solely one party's fault? How easy is it to, to minimize the, the faults of one person and really exaggerate them in another person? Sometimes I think for us, throwing stones might just be as, as simple as just unfriending that one person on social media. It might be uh, you no longer respond to their text messages. It might be uh, you stop inviting them around to your place. Um, it might be you, you know, just as simple as you pretend you don't see them when you walk past them on the mall. Or, or when, if we want to do the real kind of like real passive-aggressive, get-you-back Kiwi-style thing without throwing stones as much, might keep them as a friend on social media, but make clear we're having lots of fun, posting lots of photos of going out with our friends, but making it really clear that, that they're not invited anymore. Maybe it's uh, not so much that we throw stones as Kiwis, as New Zealanders, but that we might just put them in people's way for people to trip over. I think sometimes that, that's the way we do things. What I, what I really love about this passage is, um, is just the, the practical wisdom Jesus gives us and, and the theological depth that's here. Let's have a look at this practical wisdom. It's, there's a circus going on in those temple courts. Just an absolute fiasco. It's hysteria. It's madness. We've dragged this woman in. You know, some scholars actually reckon that because she was caught in the act of adultery, there's a high chance when she was dragged in here, she actually had no clothes on. What a circus going on at the temple courts. 
absolute circus in a place that should have been a house of reverence and awe, a place of God's presence. And instead of contributing to the hysteria and madness that was going on in there, what did Jesus do? He said nothing. <laughs> what a great example. He did nothing. He just bent over and started writing in the sand. Didn't say a word. What a great example. <laughs> How often do we want to respond in anger in a situation? Do we want to say the first thing that just comes into our minds? We just want to respond. As soon as we're hurt, we want to fire another comment back at the person to hurt them. I mean, not even if we haven't been hurt. It's just like, you know, social media seems to drive this default behavior in us that people need to hear exactly what we're thinking the minute we're thinking it. Like, we need to hear exactly how annoyed we are. People need to hear exactly how annoyed we are that Vodafone took 30 minutes to answer their phone as we're on the phone to them. Or that the power is out here. Or that Spark Internet is running really slow. I, mean, I had a friend who, who was in line to buy a concert ticket, one, a concert ticket once, and um, standing in there, somebody cut in a few places ahead of him. What did he do? He certainly didn't call the guy out in the line and say, hey, the line starts back there, buddy. Got out his phone, updated his, social media, his Facebook status, and said, oof, hate it when people cut in line for concert tickets. Of course, all his friends rallied around him and said, um, yeah, I hate it when people do that, man. Yeah, that guy sounds like an idiot. That really sucks, man. Who cares? <laughs> if you can't call the guy out, who cares? Do we really need to know what you're thinking? Did you even know why he had cut in? Maybe someone had saved him a space. But yet, very easily, we just threw some stones at a guy we didn't know. You know. Somehow we got this idea, the first thing that pops into our heads is always the right thing to say. It's always the most appropriate. It's the most genuine, authentic. I'm guilty of this too. I've done my fair share of venting on social media. I've done a fair share of arguments with people that haven't ended well. I'm just as guilty as anyone else. I think Jesus just gives us a wonderful example here, right? Slow down. Think before you speak. Maybe don't just say the first thing that pops into your mind. Don't respond in anger. Sometimes if people are getting ready to throw stones... Your words can just tip them over the edge and start a war. Maybe use your words to quell the violence. I really like that, um, that Jesus only spoke when he was pressured for an answer. And what he did was really quite smart. Because while he was riding in the sand there, um, nobody was watching the woman. All eyes slowly just turned to Jesus and what he would say next. Quite deliberate, I think, just to heighten the effect of what he would say next. Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Just feel like it's a mic drop right there. Bang. I've had arguments with people where I wish I could say something that wise. I've gone back and thought, oh, why didn't I say that? But here we go. One line out of Jesus, and it's the most wise thing you'll probably ever hear. Earthquake to the Pharisees, right? Must have shaken them to their core because you can see them thinking, oh, Never considered myself to be a sinner. I've never thought of myself as sinful. Sinful people are out there. They're not me. And if you're a good Pharisee, you know that any sin you commit deserves to be punished. It's like Jesus wanted them to realize, hey, you've brought in someone who sinned. And yes, they have. And they do deserve to be punished for their sin. Guess what? So do you. 
Only now you might find that while you might not be stoned here by the crowd, God will have the right to throw stones at you. End of your life as well. Here they were, they were trying to make God king by force. They were trying to violently oppose Caesar, trying to start a small revolution there to rid themselves of the Romans. And Jesus just stops them in their tracks and says, that's not how it's going to work, guys. That's not how my kingdom comes. God's kingdom doesn't come when you're throwing enough stones. It doesn't come when you make him king by force. Now Jesus was saying to them, no, the kingdom is going to come through the cross. And the cross alone. Think of the subtext of what Jesus was saying. Let him who's without sin cast the first stone. He's the only sinless one there. He's the only one who had the real right to throw stones by that measure. And you know what? He could, as God in the flesh, come and punish this woman for her sin right then and there. He could, as God in the flesh, in fact, punish anyone for their sin at any time and be totally justified. God is the one who's ultimately been wronged by our sin. He's the one who has the right. God could punish the Pharisees for their sin right then and there too. But he didn't. He didn't because he knew the cross was coming. He knew that on the cross he was actually going to pay for this woman's sin. He was going to actually take on all of her shame, all of her sin. He was actually going to die the death that she deserved to die. All of that, all of that stuff fell on Jesus on the cross. In her place, he stood condemned. In our place, he stood condemned. It's not just for the woman, right? It's for the world. That's why earlier in John's gospel, he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God gave his son to put the broken world back to rights, to put his broken people back to rights. I think Jesus was quite clear here. Freedom from, from sin and death, it doesn't come when you throw stones at people. A broken world and broken people, we don't get better if you keep throwing stones. It doesn't deal with what's really wrong. God himself in the person of Jesus says, I've got the right to throw stones. All of you deserve to have stones thrown at you for your sin, but instead, on the cross, I'll have every stone thrown at me. Every wrong ever committed, every sin, every injustice, every hurt, every pain, I'll take it on myself. I'll pay the price for it. I'll deal with it once and for all. You don't need to throw stones anymore. You just need to trust that what I've done on the cross is enough. It's enough. That's why when Jesus died on the cross, he cried out, it's finished. There are no more stones to be thrown. There's no more punishment for sin anymore. Jesus has paid the price. He's taken all the punishment for sin. We don't need to throw stones anymore. Some of you might be worried that Jesus was um, waving her sin away as if it didn't matter. Perhaps Jesus might be uh, to you like it might be Bruno Mars born out of time saying, girl, you're amazing just the way you are. I don't think that's what he was saying. Um, I think her sin really mattered. Jesus told her afterwards to go and sin no more, leave your life of sin, right? And I think the world we live in is really content to offer people cheap grace. Grace that just says, well, you know, you're okay, you're amazing, you're fabulous, you're a wonderful person just the way you are, you don't have to change anything. 
And it's nice that we affirm people and we love them, but I think that kind of love and grace only takes people so far. And it does, in fact, leave them worse off. Because people blindly believe that their sin no longer exists and then they persist in it. They don't think they need to be saved from anything anymore. I think Jesus loved her a lot more than that. I think he really loved her with what you could call costly grace. Because those words he said, neither do I condemn you, they weren't just some innocuous platitude designed to make a feel better. They weren't just a nice thing to say. Those words, neither do I condemn you, actually cost Jesus his life. Because without the cross, those words are meaningless. They don't mean a thing. Really important that we remember the order, though, isn't it? It's the order here. The order is, neither do I condemn you, then go live your life of sin. Grace first, eh? Grace first, then leave your life of sin. We want to reverse the order, I think, at times. We want people to leave their life of sin and then hopefully get grace afterwards. Leave your life of sin before you walk in the door here. Leave your life of sin before you can be my friend. Leave your life of sin and then hopefully grace will somehow magically appear afterwards when you've made yourself acceptable and presentable to God. No, Jesus says it's grace first. Grace first, then go leave your life of sin before she's even had a chance to say sorry, before she's had a chance to repent, it's grace first. What do you think it would mean for us to be, be a church of, of grace first? A church that didn't throw stones first, but was grace first. What would it mean to be people of, of being grace first in our, in our relationships, in our marriages, in our friendships, in the workplace? Um, let me just give you one example of where, where I've had the chance recently to, to work out grace first in my workplace. Um, I, I had a manager a while back who I, I greatly respected. He was really good at his job. And uh, I really liked working with him right up until the point where he had to give me some uh, constructive feedback. If you've had constructive feedback before, you know what that is. Um, kind of sometimes can just be a whack over the head. And... Uh, you know, I'd made a mistake, I'd made a, an error in judgment, and it didn't go down well with some of the partners, and, uh, and they had to give me the feedback on this. And while I was getting the feedback, I realized, you know, I can't really disagree with what he said. Sure, I know, I've made a mistake. Okay, that's fine. Uh, but the way it was being delivered to me was just was quite embarrassing. It was public, it was in front of a lot of people, it was poorly thought out. It didn't make me want to change my behavior and be a better employee. It just made me angry. And as I was getting this feedback, I thought, oh, who does this guy think he is? I mean, does he know how hard I work here? I don't deserve shabby treatment like this. That's it. I'm out of here. And um, I know what my first instinct was after that was to, was to go and um, you know, slag him off to my coworkers uh, when, he was, when he had his back turned, you know, when he wasn't around, just go and drum up some support, uh, commiserate with my coworkers. Oh, who does this guy think he is? And, uh, you know, to my shame, look, I've done that plenty of times in, 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 uh, in the workforce, and you know, there's plenty of things to repent of there. Um, but this time, look, I, I made a choice to do something different. I waited, uh, waited for the emotion to kind of subside. And, uh, you know, the next day, I just went over and had a chat with him face to face. And that, for me, was actually quite of a scary thing at that point, because... I didn't have the support of all these coworkers around me knowing that you know, they had my back if he didn't like me. And then I thought, well, you know, what if I go and say to him, um, 
you know, I just want to talk about the feedback. And he gets really angry that I'm not taking it on board and, and our working relationship gets worse. And then I'm, you know, I've lost out twice. I've been out-strategized by someone who's a better, you know, a better manager or who's playing the game better than me. And I thought, I'm just going to risk it. I'm just going to go for it. So I sat down and we had this chat. And um, I was able then, during that chat, to understand all the pressure he was up against. You know, he had the CEO coming down on him. He had the partners who were always demanding things and, and beating us over the head to get what they wanted. Uh, he had all sorts of other things going on. He was really busy. He was stressed out. And he just needed to get this done. But his motives were pure. He actually wanted me to be a better employee. He wanted me to grow and to be better at my job. He just needed me to understand things. Yes, he delivered it poorly. And I was able to then give him some feedback about how, you know, how best to engage me so I, you get the best out of me as an employee because I want to give my best to, to, the, to the office and to the job. And uh, we both walked away from that, that experience with a lot more respect for each other, with a much better working relationship. And, and that's as simple as grace first. That's as simple as it was for me in that situation. And I sometimes think, what would it have been like had I decided to throw stones first? Maybe not in an openly hostile and aggressive way, but maybe just going behind his back, slagging him off to the coworkers, talking behind his back, trying to just be a bit disruptive, not working as hard as I could have, holding back. I wonder how that wound might have festered and become a grudge, how it might have just colored every other interaction and how terrible our working relationship could have been for that. What would it mean for, for you to, to practice grace first? Grace first in your, in your relationships. Some of you, some of you will have an option to, opportunity to practice grace first when you get in the car with your husband or wife and you don't tell them how to drive. You practice grace first there, you can do it anywhere. Lastly, I think a passage like this really, um, really calls us to see where, where do you see yourself in this passage? I just want to add, you know, the husband-wife thing, no elbowing in church, right? That's another rule we have here at Shaw. You know, don't, don't. Yeah, that's for you, honey. Yeah. Uh, one of the rules Joy and I agreed on very early in our marriage. Uh, lastly, I think, who are you in this passage? Do you, do you find yourself behaving more and more like the Pharisees? Do you find yourself quite hard-hearted? Do you hold, withhold grace from people? Are you too eager to throw stones and get involved in conflict? I think the saddest thing about this, this text we read about the Pharisees is that every one of them, youngest to oldest, walked away from Jesus. And that's sad, eh? They all agreed with him, yes, yes, we are sinners, Jesus. So they would stand before God at the end of their lives without any excuse. We're sinful. We deserve punishment. Yet not one of them heard the same words that Jesus spoke over the woman, neither do I condemn you. They all left hardened by the word of God, persisting in their rebellion against him. I mean, if that's you today, don't, don't, leave that, don't leave this place hardened by God's word. Come and respond to it. The story just invites us to recognize our own sinfulness, to put down our stones, just to come to Jesus and receive grace. That's what the passage is about. Come to Jesus and receive grace. There's more grace than you can sin. You can't out-sin grace. I remember very early on in my, my Christian walk realizing, you know, you, know what? you know, grace is not a license for sin, but I tell you what, there's no way I could ever exhaust God's grace. And that for me was just wonderfully liberating to know, gee, I know I'm going to get it wrong. I'm going to make lots of mistakes. But I tell you what, you cannot out-sin God's grace. That's my dad, by the way, saying Gloria. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. 
Perhaps you're like the woman, right? Perhaps you've, you've done things in your past that you're probably not proud of. Perhaps people have done things to you that have uh, left you scarred and hurt you really badly. Perhaps, uh, you know, you're carrying an enormous weight each day. Maybe you feel ashamed, exposed, and humiliated by your sin. And I think the same words that Jesus spoke over the woman are words he speaks over every one of us today. He says, I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you because I've paid the price for your sin already. I mean, I'm the sinless one, right? I have the right to condemn and throw stones at you. But I've taken all your sin onto myself. So we no longer need to be defeated and and defined by our past, by our mistakes, by our sin. That's not who we are anymore. I love that song we sang. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. I am who you say I am. (laughs) Now that you've received grace, well, then, then go leave your life of sin. Come follow Jesus. May we be a people who choose not to throw stones. eh? Let's point people to Jesus instead. Let's draw attention away from us and onto him. Instead of throwing stones, may we be a church that's convicted by our own sinfulness and overjoyed at the forgiveness and grace we have in Christ. Instead of throwing stones, let's let's extend grace and mercy to others. eh? Let's be that church. Let's be that grace-first church. Instead of throwing stones, may we start to see other people on the other side as brothers and sisters for whom Christ has died. Because Christ has paid for their sin too, right? Instead of throwing stones, may we be a people who truly march to the beat of a different drum. Let's march to the beat of the gospel. Let's march to the beat of grace first. eh? Shall we pray? Father God, I... I, um, I want to come before you and just acknowledge my own sinfulness here. Here I am, a broken vessel, um, delivering your word. Lord, we're all broken vessels here. We're all sinners in need of redemption and salvation. Not one of us can claim to have bettered ourselves enough to be acceptable to you. And Lord, we thank you so much for your grace, your mercy, your tenderness, your wonderful heart towards us, Lord, that you were willing to lay down your entire life for us. You did not consider equality with God something to be used to your own advantage, but you humbled yourself and made yourself like a servant, obedient, even obedient until death. In our place, Lord, you have stood condemned. There is no longer a punishment for sins for us, Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you for that. When we appear before you at the end of our lives, you will say, well done, good and faithful servant. When you look at us, you don't see us or our sin. You see Christ. We are covered by the blood of the Lamb. Lord, we pray that we would be a people who who truly practice grace first in all areas of life. Would you open our eyes to the opportunities we have to practice grace first? Help us to put our stones down, Lord Jesus, and instead throw grace on people. We ask this in your holy and precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.